You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 29th of January 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. Order! Order! Sit, order! I know what I'm doing. Order! Uh, order! Another busy day for the Speaker of the House. My guests Joy Lodico and Lance Price will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including a dramatic escalation of the United States spat with Huawei, the climbers and fallers in Transparency International's latest Corruption Perceptions Index, and... A final item teased by a honkingly obvious musical cue. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Lance Price, political commentator and former special advisor to Prime Minister Tony Blair and Joy Ladico, columnist with the Evening Standard. Welcome both. And we will start tonight here in the UK and with Brexit, a thing which, as things stand, is going to happen in 59 days. Not that you'd necessarily know it from the leisurely pace at which British legislators are continuing to propose and debate means of accomplishing it, which obviously won't work. Today's exercises in deck chair rearrangement in the shadow of the iceberg have once again foregrounded the role of the Speaker of the House, John Burkow, who has become the subject of international attention like few if any of his predecessors and has given very little indication that he isn't enjoying it all immensely. Um, Lance, first of all, uh, I, I shouldn't be laughing at this point. I have to live here as well. Um, Theresa May is going to ask, it says here, the EU to reopen the withdrawal agreement. What, uh, uh, is Mike, what are they doing? Well, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's not so very long since she was telling us that there was no possibility of reopening the agreement. That as the, agreement, the EU have reiterated about a dozen times today alone. And as we're told, they have a piece of paper ready to issue as soon as the House of Commons has voted, saying that there is no prospect of a renegotiation. However, um, she has backed herself or been backed into such a tight corner that she's running out of options uh, and this is the one she's chosen to go for. So she's actually asking her own MPs uh, tonight in effect to vote against her own agreement that she negotiated with the European Union or at least to say that it isn't adequate and it has to be changed even though as I said she's been saying for a long time that it can't be changed. Uh, Joy is there a tendency still in British politics that, that well I don't know whether they either think the EU is bluffing or, or what we're witnessing is the political version of that that old school British belief that there are basically two languages in this world. There is English and there is English shouted. Is there just a feeling that if you if you yell at these people enough, these 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 querulous, obdurate foreigners, they will eventually do what they're being told? Well, um, I hate to give Theresa May any credit, but she does do one thing relatively well, which is she gets this idea that sometimes when she needs to change something, she won't herself stand down, but she will place the idea it, and get somebody else to do it. And Graham Brady, who is the man who's bringing this amendment to kind of reopen negotiations, is the leader of the 1922 committee, which is sort of the governing committee of the um, of the Conservative Party. And the amendment will do something um, 
which the EU, in a sense, logically has to concede. So the EU, in theory, would only ex- EU twenty seven would only extend our Article fifty deadline, were there to be a general election or a referendum. That's the word that keeps coming out of it. But Theresa May, I think, is via Brady, basically saying. If our parliament is asking to change it, which is not that different from, you know, the, the weight of a general election or a referendum, surely at that point you have to go back to the table. If the British parliament says this won't do, will the EU 27 cave in? Will, by ask, asking again, will they cave in? Um, I, I, I think that if they don't, they begin to look unreasonable. Uh, Lance, wh- while we are uh, following the precedent established there by Joy ex- extending due credit to people to whom we might not normally otherwise grant it, in the last few minutes, Oliver Letwin, the Conservative MP, uh, has stood on the floor of the House of Commons and said words to the effect that he's frankly past caring uh, what sort of agreement is reached, as long as an agreement is reached. Uh, has Oliver Letwin, for the first and possibly last time in his life, spoken for the British people? Well, I was going to say that Oliver Letwin is not normal normally what you would describe as a man of the people. Sir Oliver Oliver Letwin, I should say. Not normally what you would describe as a man of the people. But I'm sure that there is a a very large uh, proportion of the British population, if not a majority of the British population, who feel very much like him, that they just want to see it sorted out. Indeed, my Uh, my cleaner said almost exactly the same words as I left the house to come to the show this evening. She said that Oliver Letwin, she she, she, she speaks for me. She said, could they just sort it out? I mean, come on. Yes, and that is a very widespread uh, feeling. Um, and people look at the House of Commons and they think, you know, what on earth did we elect these people to do? Um, they've lost track of the debate. They've stopped following the debate, I think, most people. Um, they certainly wish and pray that the House of Commons could come to some sort of uh, resolution. There were, when the um, deal that uh, the Prime Minister negotiated was voted down so massively by 230 votes, there were two ways she could have gone. Uh, She could have tried to seek cross-party agreement, which she said she was going to do, but she really didn't try to do uh, at all. Um, And that was a possibility because you could find uh, an agreement within Parliament. And I think this is significant because the EU know that there could be an agreement, there could be a majority within Parliament for something that went closer to the Labour Party's position, including a customs union. So that option is there. She chose not to take that option, basically because of the risk of splitting her own party and 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 leaving the Conservatives out of office for who knows how long. She went the other way. She's decided to carry on allowing the Brexiteer tail to wag the Tory dog and to try to appease both her own hardline Brexiteers and the DUP. Uh, Joy, we did want to talk about the role that the Speaker of the House, John Burkow, has played in all of this. Uh, what do you make of suggestions that he is enjoying this rather too much? Well, it's all got rather theatrical, hasn't it? I mean, it has been quite theatrical all the way along. I mean, it is a theatrical role <coughs> to a very large extent, the Speaker of the House of Commons. It is. There is um, there is a man who's uh, called Quentin Letts um, of the Daily Mail, who is both theatre critic and um, their sketch writer. And he seems to... Car- I mean, he's been having a go at Burko for years and years now and actually enjoys it. I mean, it's like giving him a one-star rating for every single performance. And the way um, Burko shouts, order, order, which is not far off, audio, audio... Um, Burko's been a very controversial figure because he was originally a, a right winger. In fact, he was part of the Libertarians 25, 30 years ago, a group that uh, were uh, accused of having um, printed Hang Nelson Mandela T-shirts. And there's this sort of long, slow journey from that right wing of the party to something that is very centrist. And he's been accused of almost of turning into a, social, a socialist. Uh, and he married 
Um, a socialite, indeed. A married, a socialite socialist who has a sticker in the back of the car, the wife, Burko claims, which says uh, bollocks to Brexit. So, he, you know, so he's become a kind of very politicised figure. Um is he enjoying this? Yes, it's a great theatrical role, um, but previous speakers have also enjoyed it as well. Is he pushing through amendments uh, or changing the nature of the House in order to change the story of Brexit? Well, arguably with Dominic Grieve um, amendments a couple of weeks ago, yes, he was. He was uh, upending precedence all the way in order to make sure that this debate, that Parliament rather than the government was leading it. And so I was not surprised, for example, to find that, uh, I mean, it had a right to be on there, but that Yvette Cooper's um, Amendment and Dominic Grieve's amendment are ones that we're going to be voted on this evening because it moves the power from the Speaker to Parliament rather than to the Executive. Final quick thought on this one, Lance. Do, do you think the Speaker has his thumb on the scales? I'm not sure what that phrase means, actually. Oh, well, whether he's trying to, whether he's trying to influence the result, yes. Um, I, I, only in this sense, in that um, all of what Joy says is absolutely right, but what John Burko is, is a great defender of Parliament. Now, he's had terrible run-ins with the executive, with the government, with ministers, with the Prime Minister and the previous Prime Minister. They loathe each other. But what he is, is a huge defender of Parliament. And in the decisions that he's taken, they've nearly all been about empowering Parliament to use its influence, use its power, now, those who think that Parliament actually is basically made up of a majority of people who'd actually rather we weren't leaving the European Union at all, which may in their heart of hearts be true, then empowering Parliament may be tilting towards the Remain side or the softer Brexit side. But I think he would say in his own defence, uh, and I'll say it for him as he's not here with us this evening, that I think it is about democracy and the power of Parliament against the executive more than anything else, even more than his own ego. Okay, well, let's move along now and look at the recently rickety relationship between the United States and China, which has become even ricketier, which is the announcement by the US Department of Justice that it intends to pursue a bunch of criminal charges against Chinese mobile phone Leviathan Huawei. The allegations include bank fraud, technology theft and obstruction of justice, and attentive listeners will recall the already ongoing row concerning the arrest of Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou in Canada last month and the subsequent probably not coincidental arrests of a few unfortunate Canadians in China. Huawei denies everything, but then they would. Um, Joy, is this part of a, a bigger picture here, do we think, about a, a possibly overdue reckoning between governments and tech firms of all kinds? It is, it is the nature of technology that it tends to outstrip, at least initially, attempts to regulate it. Um, I, the, the story is so fascinating because that is correct. Um, it is about a reckoning with tech firms. It's also about a reckoning with a particular Chinese culture, which is that of espionage, which almost you know runs through everything they do. And it also relates to uh, Trump and the US-China trade wars. And you know the great Huawei competitor is Apple, and Huawei is stealing market share quite heavily. And we saw uh, Apple's uh, stock price fall. Um, the other problem is that, you know, it, the point about technology is that it is actually sort of disempowering governments because these technology firms mm. have more power, um, 
more ability to gain information. You know, the the um, security agencies of every country are kind of racing to keep up with any firm that can do technology at a very fast rate. And, you know, the US has gone against Apple itself to unlock things, you know, to ask them to unlock phones because they can't get into them. Lance, do you think these charges by the, or pre- being pressed by the DOJ are actually entirely separate from the wider spat between the US and China? China is obviously going to claim otherwise if it hasn't already. Yeah, not entirely. I mean, there's two things. One is the breach of sanctions against Iran. and mm, That was what that, might... that was what Meng Wanzhou was originally okay. held and, on. And we, uh, those of us who disagree with Trump's position on sanctions against Iran, may be more sanguine about that than the other allegations. But the other allegations about using the technology to spy um, either on individuals or uh, as a form of industrial espionage or encouraging staff to use industrial espionage, if it was just the Americans, we might think, hang on, what's going on here? But don't forget that the Australians and New Zealand, uh, they've both banned Huawei from bidding for their 5G contract. Uh, Big questions over whether they'll be allowed to bid in the UK, Canada as well. Uh, The European Union have raised serious questions about it. So I think that and all of those people obviously have looked very, very closely at the evidence before reaching those conclusions. So tempting though it is to say it's just part of Trump's spat with with China, I think it clearly goes deeper than that. Joy, do you think Western countries, the United States, the United Kingdom and Australia and New Zealand, uh, as Lance mentions, have hitherto been possibly complacent in outsourcing so much of their communications infrastructure uh, to a foreign country whose friendliness towards the West, let's say, can't always be taken for granted? Um, I think they probably have been um, because, you know, we we have known that uh, China as a kind of culture of espionage for a long time. Uh, The security services are aware that espionage is now part of uh, almost the industrial strategy of China. And it's surprising, in fact, that it's almost taken this long to work out that Huawei may in fact be, um, I mean, it's corruption, it's fraud, it's technology theft, it's infiltrating uh, mobile phones. None of this is probably that surprising to the community um, uh, experts who will have been saying this to government for a very long time, but it has actually taken this long to get some action on it. Um, you might also look at you know China's rapid industrial growth. It, China's never had; it's now beginning to have a sort of stronger copyright policy. But in the sense, in, in the sense, it's communist and communal in its interpretation of what ideas are and intellectual property are. This is just the sort of the rather nastier flip side of it, which is if you go to um, into foreign countries, you are wanting to steal their military secrets and secrets and steal their technological secrets to gain the upper hand, to gain an advance. And China arguably has done that pretty damned well. They're also authoritarian, of course, and their attitude towards tech companies is very different to the attitude that we have in the West. So if you look at the um, uh, the fact that they banned Google and then tried to open up negotiations with Google about a sort of Google light or Google heavy, whatever it would be, uh, a very constrained uh, version of Google that didn't allow you to search for everything that you wanted to, um, in some ways... In the West, where we fret about how you can challenge tech companies, the Chinese have shown that it is at least possible to do it. But uh, if you want to do it, that way of that model for doing it clearly is something that most uh, British consumers would have very considerable doubts about. Just to follow that up quickly, Lance, should Western countries think of Huawei and other Chinese tech companies as effectively arms of the Chinese Communist Party, even if they're not, should they be regarded as that 
kind of potentially dangerous to deal with and or to allow to embed too deeply in your own country's communications infrastructure? I wouldn't go that far. I mean, they're not an extension of the Chinese government, and the but the the nature of the relationship with the Chinese government is pretty opaque. So it's very hard for those of us outside of China and probably for most people inside China to be able to answer your question directly. But it does mean that we have to treat them with great care and caution. Um, And I think that um, the evidence that's been presented to governments clearly suggests that there's a very, very big problem there. Okay, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Lance Price and Joy Ladico. Coming up next, further evidence that electing a property spiv and chronic grifter president might not have been the brightest idea the United States has ever had. Perk up and tackle Monocle's fit February issue. This is an essential guide for those looking to get in fighting shape for 2019. First up, we take a look at the people leading the way in whittling their nation's waistlines from Qatar to Tonga to Norway. On to the business section, where we sit down with Airbus's CEO to talk about what's in store for aviation, before checking out the company's streamlining and speeding up deliveries. In culture, we meet Rome's top art restorers, and in design, we touch down in Parma to meet Olab, the smart architecture firm that's transformed a palace into a sleek hotel. Monocle's February issue is out now. Get your copy today or subscribe at monocle.com. You are back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Joy Ladico and Lance Price. Now, in most advanced Western countries, citizens are fond of complaining that their societies are hopelessly corrupt. These people are, by and large, wrong, certainly when compared with most of the rest of the planet. Transparency International has released its annual index of corruption perceptions, ranking 180 countries in order from least corrupt to most. As usual, the top places are more or less a lockout for Scandinavia and Northern Europe give or take Canada, New Zealand and Singapore. Arguably the most eye-catching development this year is the slide of the United States, which finds itself outside the top 20. Um, Joy, the index, is it always basically just an argument in favour of democratic institutions? There's a a fairly obvious correlation, and we will get onto the horse versus cart uh, aspect of this argument shortly, uh, between relative lack of corruption and relative uh, surplus of democracy. Yeah, actually, if you look at the map, um, and Transparency International puts out a map, and the countries that are deemed least corrupt are yellow, and those most corrupt are red. And it is just a pool of Northern Europe. You'll see it beginning to turn towards orange in Southern Europe. Canada is this lovely, bright kind of sunlight (laughs) yellow. Um, uh, uh, the US has gone orange and then the rest of it is a kind of deep orange you know ochre colour and then f- falling to red so yes it's kind of constant confirmation of a particular uh, set of values that Transparency International and, and, and also that, that cold weather keeps people honest yeah but does not necessarily um, kind of correlate with you know it's not a, it's not on living standard it's not on um, growth of a country it's not on potential of a country so you know you've got to ask why we decide that democracy is always the finest uh, value that we're trying to uphold. Uh, Lance, do most citizens, do you think, of relatively uncorrupt countries, like this one, for example, the United Kingdom ranking at 11, equal with Germany, between Luxembourg and Australia, do people enjoy overestimating how, how bent their societies are? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, I, I, I hope, because I believe it to be true, that most people in this country don't think we live in a fundamentally corrupt country. Now, if you go to some countries in southern Europe, even 
you know, France. I mean, a lot of citizens in France would, would say that they felt that their country was had a degree of corruption that concerned them, um, far more so than we have uh, in, in this country. But I don't think we should get holier than thou about it. I don't think we do live in a particularly corrupt country. I don't think we live in a corrupt country at all, really. Um, but we certainly collude with corruption, and it may be that we are forced to do that in order to win contracts for selling arms to Saudi Arabia or wherever else it may be. Um, but it's not uh, the, 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 the fact that our hands are relatively clean domestically doesn't mean that we don't muddy them when we get out there into the international market. The freedom to complain about corruption is part of an aspect of democracy which should be upheld. Uh, well, obviously, and the clues in the title, I mean, it's Transparency International. Yeah. It's actually the transparency that goes with democracy that should be the best bulwark against corruption. Yeah. Because, I mean, the the argument that I think a lot of British people would make, or those with memories stretching back to the MPs' expenses scandal of about 2008-2009, was that it, it revealed a culture of endemic corruption. But, but Lance, I'll, I'll, I'll put this to you. Did it really... I mean, on the one hand, corruption was clearly occurring. But on the other hand, it could be argued that those who were corrupt got caught. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't want to get into a semantic argument about it. But I think... I, I, I actually wouldn't class that as um, a serious case of corruption. It was, a, it was serious wrongdoing, but it wasn't a serious case of corruption. Uh, corruption is more about, you know, I'll let you build a housing estate here if you put 10 grand into my private account uh, that nobody else can trace. Uh, what we had with the expenses scandal was uh, MPs uh, being told that they could claim for certain things and then thinking, OK, well, all right, I'll do it then. Uh, and that in turn had happened because because uh, the Prime Minister at the time, Margaret Thatcher, wasn't prepared to give them a pay rise uh, and agreed to a system of expenses and allowances which bumped up the um, income of, of, of um, uh, MPs uh, artificially. Now, when all that became public, uh, through the efforts principally of the Daily Telegraph, but of the media more generally, then people were absolutely horrified about it and rightly horrified about it. And MPs should have said, hang on a second, we know we're not going to collude in this. But I wouldn't say that was corruption in the sense that we're talking about, or indeed that Transparency International might be talking about. Uh, that puts me in mind, Joy, of something I was once told by a, a, a senior politician in a country with uh, corruption issues. And I thought it was it was an interesting um, an interesting perception. He, he, he said that in his view, I've got to get this the right way around, he said people don't corrupt systems, systems corrupt people. You need to change the system. Uh, how easy or difficult is to turn it around, do you think? There, there have been some improvers this year. Uh, Estonia, Côte d'Ivoire, uh, Senegal and Guyana. Um, well, I'll, let me give you a historic example, which is Georgia, the former uh, Soviet state, which managed to turn uh, from being pretty much the most corrupt uh, nation in the world to one of the cleanest. Um, and it's uh, a series of, of Georgian politicians who'd studied in US universities went back, took over this under Saakashvili and absolutely cleaned up the system so that, you know, when you were driving down the road, a policeman could not ask you for a bribe. They were... They were filming, they were doing kind of live streaming of police busting into corrupt businessmen's houses. And they managed to change the system and the culture in a matter of years. And everything started working again. I'm not quite sure what the state of play, play is now. But so it is possible to change it, but it is the system rather than the people and what you can get away with. How indicative are those those small transactions, though, between the citizen and the state? I mean, that, that example of police officers. I've been in places where when a police officer accosts you, they, they are basically 
basically rent-seeking. It is understood that you will pay them a bribe. But I can also remember talking to a, a, a career British police officer and asking him if anybody had ever offered him a bribe. And he said, yes, only once. And I said, and how did you react? And he looked at me absolutely aghast and said, how do you think I reacted? I nicked him for that as well. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and, and I think that is uh, indicative and it has an impact. It shows the way in which a corrupt society corrupts the individuals within the society and that people become complicit within it. If they can afford to pay that bribe to get off a speeding fine or to get a driving licence for their son or to, um, you know, uh, get hold of a, a flat that they might not otherwise be able to get. There are plenty of good people in countries like you know, Italy in the past and perhaps still now, it's certainly in India and, and, and African countries who would do that, good people who uh, allow themselves to become corrupted because it's the only way to defeat the system. Well, that puts me in mind of something that an opposition politician in another country with issues of this sort once said to me. He said, you keep asking me questions about the system being corrupt. You're misunderstanding it. Here, corruption is the system. <laughs> um, we, mil- we will move along, however, finally tonight to 11th placed Germany, um, a nation often stereotyped, not altogether without reason, as a country characterised by punctilious observance of rules and regulations, down to and including don't walk warnings on even the most tumbleweed strewn thoroughfare. An exception to this rule about rules has long been the autobahn network, large stretches of which have no speed limits beyond the power of individual cars and the nerves of their drivers. Despite opinion polls suggesting that a majority of Germans now favour limits to help battle climate change, apparently, it has been confirmed that no such compulsion to take your foot off will be enacted. Um, Joy, in general, what do you think of no-limit roads? Are you are you enough of an anarchic libertarian that you're perfectly okay with that idea? No, I don't know. I wasn't actually. I've ne- I've never actually driven on a no-limit road, but I do like the idea of the sense of freedom and um, this idea you can do what you want. But I also believe in a rules-based society intellectually. So no. However, I think Germany taking that one, trying to stop the no-limit road is a tragedy for the country. It's the one place, it's the one (laughs) thing the Germans can do where they can just let loose and nobody's going to stop them for what they're going to do. But my follow-up question to you would be, Joy, does the autobahn system only work because it's Germany and because it's Germans? Yes, but also because it's BMWs uh, (laughs) bombing down there. And, you know, they've got some of the best cars in Europe. Can you imagine our system where we've got this sort of clunky little kind of, um, what do we even produce anymore, mini Coopers, or you've got your kind of Land Rover constantly breaking down. I mean, I don't think our kind of limitless roads would get beyond 100. Well, so the thing is, I I have driven, or rather as a non-driver, I've been driven on they weren't officially no-limit roads, but they were in practice uh, no-limit roads, and they were absolutely, utterly terrifying. One of them in Georgia, in fact, uh, that you were just extolling earlier, which is possibly the most frightened I have ever been in my life. But you must also think of the kind of, the, the, the way Germans do business with each other. They will find a way of r- driving on those roads, which is courteous, uh, which doesn't infringe on somebody else's liberty, but they can still bomb it down there. And they, you know, there's, there's an understanding. Every cult, every every city, every uh, country has a kind of culture of roads, and they'll be able to do it. But there is a, there is a, a, a question here here, I think, Lance, about whether that kind of free-for-all does only work in a fairly rigidly rules-based society. A, a friend of mine who worked in uh, development in Afghanistan uh, did give me an anecdote of uh, unintended consequence when at great expense uh, to the Western taxpayer, they, they repaved many of the intercity highways uh, between the, the great cities of Afghanistan, Kabul, Jalalabad, Kandahar, 
and so forth. Now, I'd been on those roads in the late 90s, and, and often it was possible to get out and walk alongside the vehicle. You could barely move. Um, therefore, it was actually impossible to do any serious damage. But once the roads were smooth, uh, they became apparently absolute death traps. Yeah, I mean, fast driving on motorways is not particularly dangerous because, and, and, and the number of accidents on motorways is remarkably low. They are very, very safe pieces of tarmac. Um, now, there are reasons why the Germans have it. One of them is it's not quite corruption, but it's certainly um, the influence of the car industry in Germany on the German government. Uh, they're based in Bavaria, BMW based in Bavaria. Uh, the right-wing governments in Germany have depended on the CDU, CSU, which is based in Bavaria uh, as well. Uh, but the Germans have got used to it. The trouble is that you haven't got in this wonderful European Union that some of us still uh, admire, you haven't got... Enjoy it while it lasts. <laughs> Thank you. You haven't got borders anymore. Um, so I drive a lot in France um, and where there are strict limits and those limits have been brought down and the French people don't particularly like the fact that those speed limits have been brought down. But the people who ignore those speed limits are Germans driving their BMWs on French motorways as if they're still at home. And that is very dangerous. I, I did want to close by just asking you both briefly to name the most terrifying road you have ever been on. I was going to nominate either the highway from Zigdidi to Tbilisi or the highway from Cairo to Alexandria at night. Never um, again. Uh, well, I remember bombing around uh, Poland in the late 90s in a Fiat 500, uh, jumping over potholes, jumping into and out of potholes, which was uh, quite something. And somehow that Fiat 500 could get up to about 70 miles an hour, which is, I think, beyond anything the Fiat ever thought they could, it could manage. <laughs> before, before the war, the, the current war, um, I hired a car in Syria and drove around Syria a lot. And that was absolutely terrifying, where people went to a roundabout and simply headed for the exit they wanted by the shortest route <laughs> rather than following any particular rules um, and would happily go down the wrong side of a, a, a motorway and you would come across a horse and cart doing the same thing. On that happy note, uh, Lance Price and Joel Adico, thank you both very much for joining us at Midori House. The show was produced by Augustin Machelari, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Martha Libri. Our studio manager was Kenya Scarlett. Music next at 1900, it's Monocle on Design. I'm back with more on the day's main stories on the daily at 2200. Midori House returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. I'm Andrew Mullet. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>